Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening. Welcome to Club Book with Mbolo Mbue. My name is Shannon Gibney, and I'm a writer, educator, and editor. I'm also a two-time winner of the Minnesota Book Awards for my novels, Sino Color and Dream Country. Uh, before I introduce Mbolo properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Culture Heritage Fund, and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library, Ramsey County Library, uh, and they're organizing tonight's talk. So now, without further ado, Cameroonian-American novelist Mbole Mbui burst into the literary scene in 2016 with her debut novel, Behold the Dreamers. Semi-autobiographical in nature, the book tracks a young Cameroonian couple as they struggle to reestablish themselves in New York City in spite of racial barriers and the economic upheaval of the Great Recession. Lauded by the New York Times, as, quote, a dissection of the American dream, savage and compassionate in all the right places, end quote. Behold the Dreamers became an Oprah's book club pick in 2017. And Bui's anticipated follow-up, How Beautiful We Were, hit shelves just last Tuesday. A heart-wrenching story about the collision of a small African village and an American oil company, How Beautiful We Were reads as a contemporary fable. In a starred review, Kirkus raves that Mbui's masterwork, quote, uses an ecological nightmare to frame a vivid and stirring picture of human beings, asserting their value to the world, whether that world cares about them or not, end quote. After a short presentation by our guest, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. 
All right. So uh, now we're going to get into it. We have our esteemed guest uh, right in front of us in the uh, company of your um, our living room or uh, your bedroom or wherever you might be. Um, I have so many questions. I have so many questions involved for you. Um, so um, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out where to start. And I think the first place I'm going to start is the question, why did you write this novel? I mean, if you even know, okay, <laughs> I'm a writer myself. Sometimes people ask me questions like that. And I'm like, I don't know, but uh, just thought we would start with that. Why, why did you write this novel? Why do you write it all? Mm. Well, thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Club Book and the libraries. And thank you everybody for coming today. <laughs> um, I haven't been asked that question yet. Why did I write this book? Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I can't say that I have, um, I really thought about why I was. I, this is a story that I started um, in 2002. At this point, it's 19 years ago. Um, I started it because I, I was inspired to start writing. And when I started writing, this was the one story that I wanted to tell. Um, it came from a place of fascination with people who stand up to fight against any form of injustice in their community, in their world. Um, I grew up as a child who was very fascinated by, um, by revolutionaries, particularly the um, revolutionaries in the 20th century. Um, I grew up, I'm from Cameroon, like you said, I grew up in Cameroon. I, I grew up in a dictatorship where there wasn't a lot of um, a lot of freedom, and it's not quite like what I saw in America. So I always had this fascination with people who choose to stand up and fight, um, and and that led me to to start writing a story about the community in Africa and and the different people in that community, how they stood up to fight against this old corporation, and it also led me to to explore. Um, the other side, because I was wanted to write, not, not at the same level, but about the other side is our company and how um, such a struggle is, is very complex and how this, this human nature is very much at play also. And I wanted to, um, to, 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 to somewhat go into, go into behind the scenes of movements and, and social struggles that had fascinated me. I'm talking, I think about the anti-apartheid movement or the civil rights movement and all the people who played major roles in them. So this, this certainly, I didn't have a why I'm writing this. I, I just knew that it came from a place of, of wanting to, um, to, to tell a story that was inspired by the people who fascinated me as a child. Well, that answer really kind of gets to my next question, which, you know, um, what is this novel really about from your perspective? Um, and, and again, another sort of tricky question. I know as artists and writers, it's like, you know, you feel called many times to put a work out into the world. And then it's not necessarily your job mm -hmm. to filter out, um, you know, how people, how people receive it. But, you know, what if anything with that, right? Uh, that question about what, what is this novel about? What if anything do you want readers to, to get from the novel? Right, well, you just said it earlier, right? It's, it's not my place to tell anybody what to get from any work of art. I don't, I don't, uh, 
ever imagine asking a writer, what do you want me to get out of your book? Because I, <laughs> I come to it with my own perspective and I take out of it what I can. So it is like any work of art. I, I, I have no agenda here. I am not trying to make you see the world one way or another. I am simply presenting a story um, which is not an uncommon story, right? The, this, this story has environmental degradation at its, at its core. It has um, a corporation that, that is acting like, a, like, like, like one of the colonial masters. This is very much about corporate imperialism. It has a lot to do with, with dictatorship and, and, and corruption, and, 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 but also wonderful um, aspects like the media that tries to expose certain stories that are not quite heard usually, and also um, and also people who are on both sides of the struggle trying to do their best. So I didn't exactly have any sort of agenda. I don't want. I don't think I want you to take anything or not take anything. Obviously, if you take something positive, you know, hooray for me as a writer and as a human. You know, I think we all have a capacity to grow and and learn. And as, as a reader, I have learned and grew, and grown a lot from literature. Um, but I don't. Um, uh, it's a work of art, and I hope that any reader can take out of it what they wish to take out of it. So there's so uh, much range. It's an intergenerational story. Um, so it takes place over many years um, in uh, this uh, fictional African village of uh, Kasawa. Um, and again, there's just, there's so many uh, fascinating characters, but I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Thula. I mean, so as I said, in many ways, this is a, a multi-vocal uh, novel with many protagonists, but in many ways, I mean, it's it's centered deeply on Thula. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wonder if you could talk at all about uh, creating her character, um, what that was like, is she based on anybody? I mean, I know you said in your introduction too that, um, you know, you were inspired by leaders and, and ordinary people kind of uh, rising up um, against corporations and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, I just wonder if you could talk about, she's such, she's such a singular character, both in her community mm -hmm. in Kasawa, mm -hmm. as well as on the page. I don't mm -hmm. know if I have seen mm -hmm. a character quite like her before. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, she is, um... She is certainly uh, a character who I. She's she's certainly a character who I spend a lot of time with. She's the very first character when I started writing this book. Tula was um, the first character who appeared, and the story very much revolved around her. Um, she's a girl growing up in the village. This the story is set in a fictional African village, um, and she has a lot of questions about why the way the why the world is the way it is. Um, she's very. Um, even for a child, she's full of she's full of questions, and she's quite angry also because she doesn't understand why um, this this oil company is, is polluting their land and nobody's doing anything about it. And she sees her friends dying around her because the poison gets to the children, and the children start dying. And, and not only that, her family is very much affected by this struggle. Um, so having that that desire to do something as a child, she grows up to become a young woman who basically takes the struggle into her hands. And she 
She, 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 she's very interested in getting educated. She goes through a lot, even as a child, to, to get an education. And eventually, she comes to America. And America is where she really, I guess, gets her full education as a revolutionary. <laughs> um, America opened her eyes to democracy. America opened her eyes to, to people standing and marching and pushing back. And the books she read here and the people she met here. Um, so it was um, that, that education certainly made a difference for her. And eventually, she goes back to her country to, to lead this struggle to, to not only to bring the oil company to justice, but also to, um, to, to do something about, about bringing democracy to her country. So yeah, and I, I just want to tell our readers as well, our viewers as well as you, I have a six-year-old here um, and a dog. So uh, we're trying to negotiate that right now. So thank you for your flexibility here. Um, so you know, you, you get at sort of Dula's development mm -hmm. um, as a, a revolutionary, as a, a young woman. Uh, who cares deeply about her family, her community, her home, um, and um, the pollution that's, that's, I mean, the, the novel starts off with like the, you know, there's all these, there's children dying, you know, time. I mean, it's, it's a very grim situation that they're mm -hmm. in. Um, as I read through the novel, on one level, it seems to be exploring different strategies for the dispossessed to fight their oppressors. Mm -hmm. And the particular cost of each strategy, right? Mm -hmm. You can bury your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. You can tell your story to your neighbors. You can tell your story to the world. Mm -hmm. You can organize uh, with different cultural, social, uh, political factions. There's legal remedies that you can try. Uh, and then, you know, guerrilla tactics and, and violence. Mm -hmm. um, and so individuals in Kasawa, including Kula, I mean, they, they adopt various strategies against Pakistan, this evil oil conglomerate that's aligned with the corrupt uh, government, his excellency, mm -hmm. um, at various times. And, and they have different levels of success and failure. Mm -hmm. um, I want to just read a very short section here, uh, or line, I guess. Um, and this is later in the novel. And this is, um, Nubia is uh, one character, um, Juba's wife later on. And she says here, you know, she's had uh, sort of a rough uh, uh, coming up, uh, growing up. Uh, Thula knew about Nubia's father. She'd lived longer than Nubia, seen more, and yet she believed still that goodness would triumph. Triumph. Nubia saw no use in telling her that the world operated under laws Thula could never change, and that our sole obligation was to ourselves, to our happiness, and the happiness of the ones that we love. I mean, this is just an, one example of the richness of the book, right? That, that, I mean, that's just one uh, perspective, mm -hmm. right? On, on how do you deal with this ongoing corruption mm -hmm. and oppression. Mm -hmm. uh, and Juba and his wife have made a particular choice, which is very different than the mm -hmm. choice that Thula made. Mm -hmm. um, it, so, you know, Thula, the revolution, tries to reason with Paxton at different times. She tries to argue with them. Uh, she tries to take him to court, you know, pressure the corrupt government. There's, there's all these different strategies. 
but in some ways, you know, it's like we see the the, the cost benefit analysis, right? But mm -hmm. um, in some ways, I think you could argue like that. Does it come to not right? Mm -hmm. I, I I would say, and I don't quite understand why the book doesn't. It still doesn't succumb to nihilism, you mm -hmm. know, and this idea that like okay, there's no hope. Mm -hmm. um, even though some of the characters in it certainly do. Um, so, you know, I would still characterize the book as interested in the possibilities of human and spiritual connection, like that, and, and, and particularly connection to place. I know this is a long question, but. Right. You know, <laughs> no, please, so, yeah, I'm enjoying. <laughs> it's so rich, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and just it, it, there's so much there with this. I mean, what, what, what would you say? um about about that issue i mean in in terms of sort of like where the book mm -hmm. kind of leads us to and i know there's issues of sort of okay you don't want to reveal too much mm -hmm. to folks mm -hmm. because it is a brilliant book like we do want folks to read it we don't want to give away mm -hmm. everything but i i i love novels mm -hmm. and i read them because of the ideas in them and there's mm -hmm. so many ideas mm -hmm. to really to, to really pick through in there but I mean, what, what would you say about this, this notion that the, the novel is trying to parse through mm -hmm. um, these different strategies mm -hmm. for uh, social, uh, mm -hmm. social revolt and, and, mm -hmm. and um, combating oppression? Right. Yeah, well, I just want to give you kudos, first of all, for being able to <laughs> juggle out. <laughs> I can see you have a lot going on. Yeah, and I'm sorry. Like, that's a, I mean, I, I, I completely honest. I just want to like praise that. you because I know I know it's not easy. So thank you for doing this, even <laughs> though you have so much going on. I mean, it's not easy being a mother, a professional, a writer, talking to another writer on Zoom in public, and you you handling it all with grace. So, so much. I appreciate your support. Uh, we were talking before that uh, Mbolo also has. Uh, two children who are the same age as mine, so you you understand my <laughs> struggle intimately. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's not easy. So I'm looking at you, I'm like, oh wow, she's good because you know you're, you're not sweating. So I hope I hope our I hope our viewers understand also because it, it really is not easy to be juggling so much, and that is what the pandemic has showed us, right? That, you know, yes, that exactly. And um, you just you just make it work. You, you just know? make it work. We're all doing our best. So thank you. Um, mm. as for your question, I um. Yeah, so so I, I, I didn't come to this novel with answers, right? I think that is why it is what it is, because, because I I have a lot of questions myself. I have a lot of questions about, about the price you have to pay. You know, there's a lot of sacrificing going on in this story. People sacrifice a lot for 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 justice, right? And then there are also people who don't do do any sacrificing. And they have their own reason. There are some people who benefit from the from the hard work and the sacrifice of other people. And so it wasn't so much that I wanted to answer any question, which is why you know there are all these characters that go in different directions and some and disagree with different strategies. Because, like you said, this struggle lasts for forty years and it involves many different strategies. And the characters are. Uh, you know, they have different motivations and they want different things. Some people are out for revenge, some people are out for money, some people, people have different things because we are human and we have our own, you know, individual motivations, even, even when we're part of a group. So 
Um, as a writer, I do not believe in judging my characters. That is not my place. Um, and it didn't, I didn't get there easily. I, I wrote, my first book had to do, had a lot to do with, had characters who I didn't exactly, uh, weren't exactly people that I would hang out with and have lunch with, but I had to really get behind the scenes in their lives and understand them. And I, and I did my best to do that over here also to say, I don't understand. I wouldn't make that decision myself, <laughs> but my job is to tell your perspective and leave it up to the reader to decide what they think of you. That's what I really appreciated about the book, right? I mean, is like, look, there's no easy answers here. And like, there's a price for everything. That's right. right? Like every, no one is innocent. No one is unscathed That's right. by this. And, you know, Pexton, the oil company, as, you know, terrible as they are, it's like there, there are good people who work for Pexton. Yeah, they, I mean, the human beings work there. You know, and people, that is one thing I, I you know, talked about a lot while writing this novel, because when we think of the government or the corporation, right, we think of these somewhat, you know, faceless organizations but they are populated by humans. Governments are made of humans. If you go to your social security office, your, even your local DMV, whatever, you see human beings. Human beings will have their own stories. Uh, and you don't know why they work there. You don't know, you don't know what they have to deal with working there. So it, it, it's just important that I, that I present that human. So even though person was, is on the surface, is you know, not very wonderful oil company that is doing you know, quite a lot of injustice because I don't think, you know, Many anybody will agree that person is doing a good thing destroying this environment, but we still have to take a step back and look at the humans at Pexton, at least at, as many of them as we could, and, and understand who they are and, and look at the ones who in their own way try to do something to put an end to the situation. I wonder too, um, I felt like the book in so many ways is this love story, mm -hmm. but it's not a love story I feel like in the, um, you know, the, the, the romantic sense that we think of a love story. I felt like it was a love story to, to, to this place, mm -hmm. right? This Kasawa, this home, it was a love story to lineage and even to, to story itself. So this is Thula in a letter and she says, even those who unlike me cannot physically return home do so with their spirits. Their sanity demands it. No matter where they go, they carry their birthplace, never apart from all that it gave and took away from them. Mm -hmm. And it goes on, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, so I'll, I, again, encourage our viewers to uh, check it out for themselves. But at, at once that seems like a very um, sort of indigenous African sort of mm -hmm. understanding um, is sort of how I would characterize it uh, to, to place, like it, it doesn't feel very, you know, American in the dominant <laughs> sense, right? And so, yeah, and, and um, but it's beautiful, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, 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 it sort of takes your breath away a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wonder if you can, you can talk about you know, that idea is, is that this book is, you know, sort of like this love story to this, to this place, to lineage the home. Um, and, but then at the same time, 
I'm a Buddhist, so I've, I've, I've noticed some, some, some themes, and maybe I was extrapolating a little bit, but of that love, when people get too attached to it, mm -hmm. it seemed mm -hmm. like it, it just went awry. Right. <laughs> I just, so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Right. It's funny you saying that because today I was thinking and I said, you know, part of what, part of this struggle, I mean, there's obviously the issue of the, the, the villagers would like to live in a clean environment and, and they, um, they fight in this whole company because there is a real, um, when the story starts in the present, there's, there's a major issue going on with the rivers are covered with toxic waste and the pipelines are spilling, the air is just very dirty and, and there's a major issue going there. And so they obviously fighting for a clean village just to be able to live in a clean place. But there's also the part where they really want to hold on to their way of life and to their past. They're very connected to their ancestors. They're very connected to everything that has happened in this place. And, and like Tula said in the passage in which you live, like this is our home. We don't, we don't want to go anywhere. And I, and I think that that is, that is not uncommon for people who were born in the same place, live in the same place, you know, their family and friends are there. You have an attachment to it. And, and that is something that I didn't think about a lot because I, I left home when I was 17 and I moved to America. So I, I've not, I, I don't even, I cannot appreciate how it's, what it's like to be born in the same place, live in the same place, be surrounded by your family and friends. The whole, your whole world is still the same. I remember when I, um, I had a coworker many years ago and she lived in the Bronx in New York City. And she said, I'm never living in the Bronx. I was born here, my family is here, my friends are here, I work here, I, like, this is where I'm gonna live my whole life, this is where I'm gonna die. And I thought, oh my God, because <laughs> it never occurred to me that there were people like that were just in the same place their whole lives. But it is not uncommon, I think, in the modern world, and especially in America, you know, we tend to move around a lot. You're born in one town, you move to another state, you go to college somewhere else, you, you travel around. Um, but if you are from a community, like, a, like an indigenous community, quite like the one in this book, and this is also in the 80s when the story starts, you know, it's not exactly as if people are move, going out overseas or going abroad, like in the 80s in an African village, you know, your world is, Maybe your village and the surrounding village and that villages and that's about it. So it, it, that is a huge part of who they are, right? It is a huge part of the essence. The, the, and they also have a strong connection to the past, to their ancestors and, and to everything that has happened to their land and how they have survived. So they're also holding on to that. And I, and I see your point about the Buddhist element because there's a whole attachment thing going on. There. Okay, like you guys are too attached to your, to your world and to your land and to, to that. Um, but they have different spiritual values, right? <laughs> so their spiritual values are about, um, you know, holding on, let's, let's be attached, right? They all about be attached. Um. And then also too, you know, this sort of the, uh, the narrative of sort of like how the spirit bequeathed the land to them and the, yes. the leopard and yes. all of that. I mean, it's so like, and then to sort of try to lay that on top of a government. Right. I mean, it's like, right. I mean, Right. <laughs> how does that work right? right I mean it's just um right. and I just felt like it, it almost was like I felt like as I was reading the first hundred pages it was like okay laying stuff out and I was sort of going along with it and then it was like you put another layer on yeah. and then another layer right. and then another layer <laughs> and I was like oh my god like, how, 
how would this even, you know, come to be? Right. I'm going to ask you one more question. We've got like uh, a bunch of really great questions um, from uh, viewers, from readers. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to choose one of these. That, mm -hmm. That's going to be hard. Um, all right, I'm going to go with this one. Okay. You being a writer of African descent, writing about people of African descent, given the West's egregious history of, <laughs> of misrepresenting Africa and Africans, and here I'm thinking of Joseph Conrad, Heart right. of Darkness. I mean, it's just like mm -hmm. a, such, such a long tradition of uh, misrepresentation. Um, I mean, do you think about that? Mm. Do you contemplate that in your, your own work? Mm -hmm. I mean, because these are characters that you've rendered here in how beautiful we were that we don't we don't really see. I, I haven't, you know, I've, I've certainly uh, read uh, probably much more widely than, than the average Westerner, a lot of African writers, mm -hmm. um, but still and yet I haven't quite seen these mm -hmm. characters mm -hmm. yet. So I, right. I wonder if you could kind of talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, it's funny because you mentioned like, you know, Conrad and all of those guys, and I had a very different experience. As a child, I actually read books that represented Africans. <laughs> I read books that were like these. Um, I, I didn't read Conrad growing up, because even if I did, I would have said, what is that? Because in my childhood, at least when I was growing up, until I came to America as a teenager, there were lots of great books by great African writers. So when people say to me now, oh, there are all these African writers, I'm thinking, what world are you living in? There were great African writers <laughs> since the 50s, 60s. I mean, this is not new. I read books by Ngugi Wationgo from Kenya, Elechi Amaji from Nigeria, you know, Kamara Lai from the Guinea. These are all books that portrayed Africans like the ones in How Beautiful We Were. So I um, I, and I love those stories. And, and maybe as, this was also driven by sort of nostalgia for, for the books of my childhood that portrayed Africans, especially in Gugi Wationgo, who I highly recommend that people read because it's just not very well known in America. Like he, he portrayed Africans pushing back against, against colonialism, pushing back against corporate imperialism, pushing back against corrupt government. So I, because I already had this um, fascination with, with, with activists and dissidents and revolutionaries, this this book certainly helped shape my thinking. Um, so, and the other thing is that I spent my early childhood in African villages. So I, up to about the age of eight, I lived in a couple of different African villages. It wasn't, I wasn't from those villages. My mother worked there, my mother worked for the government and, and we lived there. And so my early childhood was in African villages. And I thought it was wonderful to live in African villages. I, I was surprised when people make fun of, of African villagers and think that they're somewhat backwards or, or not as intelligent because they live in African village because I thought, you have no idea <laughs> how wonderful and intelligent and sophisticated people are. And, and so I just like I portrayed the Wall Street executive as a complex character, I, 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 I had to portray African villagers as complex characters because it doesn't matter what setting, I, I prefer to look at a human being I prefer to look at, to tell their story as opposed to like um, make them into some sort of some of thing to make a message. It's just important to me that that I look at the human. And because I grew up in in a place where um, 
people like the characters in How Beautiful We Were were not uncommon. I mean, maybe maybe not Tula, but there were <laughs> there were certain characters who had that way of talking. I just had a short story that came out in the New Yorker today, and it was about it's about you know also certain African villages in an African village, and 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 I I grew up around that. So I and I, I'm ha I'm happy that I wasn't exposed to the kind of literature that made a caricature out of people who I knew to be like very full and complex human beings. Thank you for that beautiful answer. We have a question from Facebook. As an American raised in Cameroon, I've always struggled to better understand the relationship between America and African countries. I'm so grateful for authors like you who explore these themes. What are some things you wish Americans understood about Cameroonians and other Africans? What do you wish Americans understood better about themselves and the relationship this nation has had to African countries and people? Which you, you, you know, you, you, but that that is dealt with a little bit in the novel too. Right, um, right, right. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, this is. I mean, Africa has Africa has. <laughs> has seen its share, right, when it comes to being used by the West. I mean, we start all the way from, you know, humans being pillaged to, to I mean, there's things happening in this novel, they're all taken from real life events, whether it's oil, whether it's diamonds, whether it's, it's, it's copper, like it, it has happened and it continues to happen. And, and but again, I am not, I am not a historian, right? I am not a sociologist. I'm not a political scientist. I am a novelist. So I do not, I do not claim to be an expert on African issues or relationship between Africans and the West. I, I tell stories about humans and from those stories, you can deduct whatever you want to. But my interest is not to make a political analysis. My interest is in telling the stories of the humans and seeing how all of these global factors have influenced the life of ordinary people. And we appreciate that you are a novelist uh, because you can get at that human truth. I always say there's, there's you know, uh, historical truth and then there's human truth. And mm -hmm. novelists are, are concerned with the first thing. Mm -hmm. um, we got another great question uh, from a reader. Kasawa is in an unnamed country. Why did you choose to leave it vague? Um, did your own youth in Cameroon influence anything we see through Tula's eyes? And you talked about that a little bit, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, I created Kosawa first. Right? I created this village and, and certainly was inspired by um, many places in Africa. I took many different <laughs> elements. I mean, the characters have names like Malabo and, and Tunis and, and, and uh, uh, and Lusaka, which are African, African capitals. <laughs> but I, I, I created this village based on my knowledge of African cultures and having read books by Africans and having grown up in Africa and lived in African villages, so I created this village. And it wasn't important to me that I put it in a country to make it real. Like to me, it was real enough. It is a real place. It might be fictional, but it is real. And that was most important. But that was what was most important, not so much that I put it in a country. I mean, anybody can tell this in Africa. You can figure that it's probably in West Africa because it's somewhere close to the Atlantic. Um, but it, 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 it didn't, giving it, um, putting it in a particular country was not, I didn't think that was necessary. It's interesting because it's, it's sort of like um, every country and every culture has its own very particular history, but I feel like the the mythology of 
Casala, you rendered it uh, so beautifully, mm. you know, um, at, that it, it really did feel like a real place. Mm. Um, we got another question here from a reader. Um, does the revolution that Tulip brings about have any specific historical analogs? Mm. Did you do, he talked about this, in, you know, a minute ago, did you do in-depth research on geopolitics, colonialism, and unscrupulous oil companies, of which mm. there are many, or were you already pretty well versed in all of those sobering topics? <laughs> well, I was versed enough. I won't say I was pretty well versed. As, as somebody who reads a lot and keeps herself informed about the world, I knew enough, but no, I had to do a ton of research. This was a very heavily researched novel. I, I, I certainly had to read a lot about oil, um, oil exploration, which is, you know, very much part of the novel because person is an oil company. I, I can't say I knew the difference between an oil field and an oil well. Um, I didn't really know how pipelines work and and many different things about that. I had to learn. Um, I, I I also had to. I, I've also I already read a lot about revolutionaries starting from when I was young, so that was. I, I really figured that out from as a consequence of growing up and reading memoirs by uh, biographies of Mandela and Malcolm X and Dr. King and Gandhi. So uh, look, or even as much as I knew about people like uh, say Gloria Steinem or Angela Davis who were all inspirations for Tula. So that was, so Tula was also a world research character because I don't exactly meet the Tulas of the world every day, right? <laughs> she's not, you know, she's, a, she's, she's quite a unique, like you said, she's very singular. Um, there are many women now. And the other thing is that, you know, growing up in, in, in Cameroon, when I grew up, you know, the people who were being celebrated for changing the world were not exactly the women, right? You know, even though they were women who were doing a lot, there weren't a lot of women who were celebrated. And so I, um, I, with Tula, I was, I was willing to go there and say, I imagine that there are many women like Tula out there, we just, you know, we just don't talk, talk about them as much. We're getting more questions. I have a question about patriarchy um, okay. and, and, and what sort of like the, the gender dynamics, because that part, the, the latter part of the novel where we really start to see the arc of that, mm -hmm. right? um, and, and, and some of the problems, uh, that come about in terms of, of trying to create a more equitable society and patriarchy. But we'll see if I have time for that. <laughs> you have a message from Facebook, another one. Did you have beta readers for this book, both of your books? Uh, what were their cultural lenses? Were they all in the US? Did you learn anything interesting from those early readers? I'm, I didn't get the first part of the question. Oh, did you have uh, beta readers? For this book. Oh, oh, better readers for the book. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, no, no, I mean not really. I, I, um, <laughs> I mean I have editors. I, um, I, I mostly write my book, and when I feel satisfied with it, then I, I, I show it to my editor. Um, where we behold the dreamers, it was I had a couple of people read it, and then it went to my agent before my editor, and and just for people who don't know how the publishing process works, you, you, your book gets edited. So there's a lot that you do when you meet your, your editor and you talk about it and you work, you work on it. And it was the same thing with How Beautiful We Were. It was a little bit different with How Beautiful We Were because I was writing it over so many years. I started writing it in 2002 and then I put it aside in about 2011 to write Behold the Dreamers. And then I, put, and then I came back to it in 2016. Um, 
and, and of course, during that time, a lot changed. The foundation was always, there was always a village, there was a young girl, Tula, there was a group of men fighting, there was a corporation, the teacher was always there, but of course, characters moved and the plot changed. Um, um, and then when I, um, when I sat down to, um, to work with my editor, we obviously, like, you know, clean off all the rough edges. I also have wonderful friends who read, who read my work. Um, who also actually, um, a lot of them are Americans. So it didn't, uh, if you look at my acknowledgement, you see, um, so they also read my work, but certainly um, it was, I, 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 I mostly write what I believe I'm called to write. Then, then in the final stages, I work with my editor to, to like I said, clean up the rough edges. <laughs> Because I, I should I should add that when if it wasn't my if it wasn't for my editor, the book would probably be 500 pages. Right? You're talking about like all these things. There's so much temptation to throw everything in there. And my editor said, okay, you know, let's not get out of control here. You know, let's keep the story nice and tight. So that was it was I had a wonderful editor. The editors of the world are just uh amazing. You know, when you find a really good editor, it's like, oh my god, thank yeah. you. Thank it's you. a different kind of talent from writing. It's it is. Talent. But it is a talent and it's very... This is definitely a talent. Oh my gosh. Um, can you talk also a little bit about that journey that you mentioned of starting to write this book mm -hmm. and then you said you put it down mm -hmm. and writing Behold the Dreamers mm -hmm. and then now coming back to, to this one. That That's not... I mean... We might hear some stories about that from writers, but that, that's not a trajectory that we hear that much. And, and sort of why did you put it down and start something new and what brought you back? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, and it's funny because it's not, it's not uncommon for a writer to start a book and then put it aside and then start something else, put it aside. Usually we don't go back to the old stories, right? I think that's most likely what happened. Usually you're like, okay, I'll just write something else. Um, and I thought that would be me. I really thought when I started Behold the Dreamers, because when I when I um, put this aside in 2011 to start writing Behold the Dreamers, I really thought, okay, this story is gone, right? I'm not writing it. I'm writing Behold the Dreamers was just it's set in New York City. It has a lot to do with America and characters living in America, as opposed to how beautiful we were, where characters are in a fictional African village. Um, and so I, I, I wrote Behold the Dreamers and it was published. Um, but once it was published, I knew that I couldn't, this story wouldn't let me go. It just kept on haunting me. I don't think there was ever a time in this whole, and I wrote the book over a 17 year period. I don't think there was ever a time in that 17 year period that I didn't think about it. I mean, and 17 years, obviously I didn't write for 17 years, right? There were one or two years I didn't write a single word. One year I wrote a lot, I, you know, it was all up and down. And by the last three years, I definitely um, focused on it. But it had to do with the fact that, I mean, you're a writer, you know when something holds you and grabs you and you can't, it won't let you go, right? It says, you're going to tell this story, even if it means that, you know, I, I come after you every night in your dreams, you're going to tell the story. So that was what happened to me. It's so funny that you say that because my, my second novel, which is the historical one, and, mm -hmm. and that, that was exactly it. I, I always say I tried not writing it for 10 years because mm -hmm. I knew it would uh, kick my butt. Right. And it wouldn't. It wouldn't let me go. Like, right. and, then, like and then, I and then I was trying to write it for the next ten years. Right. Um, and and so I, I, that totally rings true. Some things, right. it's it, some projects. They, as you say, they just they won't let you go. They won't let you go. <laughs> no. 
Um, another, another question from our viewers. What contemporary African authors would you recommend to a fan of your work and who's already devoured the work of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie? Um, I mean, there's so many. I, I am a huge fan of Chigozi Obioma, the Nigerian writer. He wrote a book called The Fisherman. Um, I also love, I mean, I, so I have, a, I have a, a special place in my heart for books about African children. And, you know, The Fisherman is about, you know, it's, it's African boys in Nigeria. Um, Novale Bulawayo's We Need New Names, that's also a book about African children. I really love that one. So, and um, Wayetu Moore just had a memoir that came out last year. It also has to do with her family living, um, living in Liberia to come to America when she was a child. Um, so those are, those are three African writers that I would definitely recommend. Um, I loved her, um, Layoti Moore's, uh, uh, both her memoir, but also her first. Her she first would be novel. king. Yes, it was yeah. just like, oh, yeah. so, yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. Uh, this, this person writes, I love how you give us rounded characters all around, even the oil company reps and the village man, man, madman have many redeeming qualities. Was it hard to write believable, uh, but at times empathetic, bad, bad guys or bad people? <laughs> Quote unquote. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, it's, it, it's not any harder to write bad or good people, I think is. It's, it's harder to write complex characters, whether they're good people on the surface or the bad. It, it's just important for me that I, that I, that I do justice to every character. Um, and that, that is the benefit of having written one book. And when I wrote Behold the Dreamers, it was a very, it was a big turning point for me when I started, um, and I started realizing that I could show the same level of empathy to the Wall Street executive the way I could show it to his chauffeur, an African immigrant. Because before I was thinking, oh, you know, gender is an African immigrant. He's like me, he's from my town. Of course, I should be nicer to him. Um, but that, it, it doesn't work like that. Like, at least my kind of literature doesn't work like that. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't think it's, Difficult. I think the characters are difficult. I mean, in my in Behold the Dream, as a character of Cindy Edwards was very difficult, um, and certainly um, in 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 How Beautiful We Were, Tula is a, not a, not the easiest character in the world um, because she's so she's so complex. Um, but no, it's not particularly difficult to write people that. And I don't necessarily think that you know Conga is a bad guy. He, he's a madman. He is he um. He, he's, he makes a decision that you know, sets the whole struggle going, but he's more complex than, than bad. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the good, versus, good guy versus bad guy. I just don't look at life like that. I feel like that's, I feel like that's sort of the, the beauty of literature. You know? mm -hmm. It's like you really get into um, the good parts of you know, the bad people. And certainly when I read Behold the Dreamers, I mean, the Wall Street executive and his family. I mean, I was not trying to feel empathy for that. <laughs> you, know, you know, they took the money, they did this, uh, you know. Right. But it was like, um, I, I felt like that was a journey that you, you took you took me on as a reader. That that um, that was very um, right. powerful. So um, we have another question here. Um, can you flesh out the interplay between French speakers 
and English speech speakers in Limbe uh, that gets mentioned in your work, as they are both colonial, colonially introduced, that modern relationship have me flummoxed. Mm. Right, so this is somebody who clearly knows that Cameroon is a bilingual country. Um, it's a majority French speaking. I'll say about 80% of Cameroonians are French speakers and about 20% are English speakers. And I come from the, the English speaking part. Um, so I, I grew up as a linguistic minority, which is not the term, term you hear every day, uh, but I grew up um, speaking English in a country where speaking English wasn't exactly very valued. Um, but yes, it has caused quite a lot of, um, of, of, of disagreement and sadly a lot of fighting and bloodshed. Um, about 2016, some people in the Cameroonian side decided to, to ask for more equal treatment because it's just, you know, we, 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 we were marginalized being English speaking. You just, have, you just don't have the same advantages as French speaking, which doesn't mean that the French speakers have been any easier because it is a overall pretty corrupt <laughs> government that we have. So whether you're French speaking or English speaking, you know, there is just, there's a lot of corruption, but I, but I think that the English speakers were asking to be at least be recognized as being more equal citizens, equal citizens, um, and the government pushed back, and there's been a lot of um, bloodshed. Villages have been burned, protesters have been slaughtered, children have been killed in classes. Um, my hometown of Limbe has, thankfully, I hope it stays that way, has been mostly spared from the violence, but it doesn't make it any easier for me to deal with because it's been happening all over my part of the country and, and it just breaks my heart, you know, what, what is happening. Thank you for that. Um, and this sort of leads into the, the next question from the reader. How has your work in international fame been received in Cameroon? And have you heard feedback from expats and other diasporic African communities? Um, well, I haven't exactly spoken about my work a lot in Cameroon, but when I was there in 2018, I met some people in my town who have read my book. <laughs> and it, it's just, I mean, that was just before the dreamers they had read. They had, this book just came out, so I don't think it's gotten to Cameroon yet. But yeah, it's, it's a different interpretation, but I've gotten nothing but support and, and total kindness from my fellow Cameroonians who read. And, and the Cameroon government, even though I, I'm not exactly their biggest fan, it's not like I go ahead and say wonderful things about them, they have been quite kind and supportive to me. They've invited me to come to the country to speak. Um, they've reached out to my team on several occasions. So uh, I would say they have, they have shown me support, even though, like I said, I don't exactly go ahead and sing their praises when I, when I get in public. <laughs> I'm going to uh, sort of uh, wind this down and ask you my, my burning question here um, about uh, in how beautiful we were. Um, what do you think the novel is saying about the role and limits of patriarchy in, in social movements and, and change? Um, there were, it's like, um, <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm not going to reveal anything, but I was <laughs> shocked. I was shocked <laughs> by Tula's, there's a scene where her friends sort of like prepare her for this great liberation day that she's right. been getting ready for. And what they do, I'm like, I, I mean, I know I'm a Western reader, but <laughs> I mean, my, my head exploded. Like, I, just, <laughs> I, I cannot, mm. I just cannot. 
And then, of course, as she sort of goes and and tries to to build this revolutionary uh, fervor mm -hmm. throughout the country, it's like people are like, "Yo, like, what's luck is? You're like 40, and like you're not married, and like you're not a real woman. Like you don't have children. Like, I I mean, I just um, I was really hardened." that the novel really went in on that because, <laughs> you know. Even, even though, you, even though you, you, you made your head almost explode, you're like, oh, I like that. One <laughs> kind of almost explosion, right? It was like, it felt like, yeah, this is something that would happen. Like if there right. was this African woman mm -hmm. revolutionary, like in the hinterlands, like not mm -hmm. in the cities, right. but like That's in right. the villages, like right. how really, how would men react there? Like right. who make all the decisions and stuff? And right. yeah, right. So but, but look at look at what is happening in America. I mean, like, are women treated any better when they try to do something in America? <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, it's like that, I mean, I think I think that is a great point you're making. I think that is just patriarchy, right? Men, it's not uncommon for men all over the world to think that they have the right to 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 own women's body and make comments about it and control it and tell them how they should live their lives. Um, I mean, it's it's happening every day here, but yes, I think in a traditional society like Tula's where um, there's just very strongly rooted values on a woman's place, it's, it's very difficult. That was one of her struggles. A woman who somewhat owns her life, right? She is married to her purpose and the people don't understand what that means, why a woman, why she wouldn't want to be married with babies and she's determined to spend her life fighting for, for, for change. But the Tulas abound all over the world. <laughs> they are two, the women who have given their lives to a cause and, and as a human, I have so much admiration for them. I have a special place in my heart for powerful women. I love tough women, <laughs> I just do. And yeah, so you're one of those belly. <laughs> Um, you and me, I, you and me both. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love to write about them, <laughs> but, uh, but it is because I, I, and and that is why you know. Thank you for saying that. It was important to me that that just because you know, Kosawa is on the in the is fighting against this oil company doesn't mean that is this perfect wholesome place where everybody is just wonderful and women are treated. No, there's a lot of sexism in Kosawa. <laughs> Yeah. And no, and I really appreciated that layering. That's what I mean, like the layering. Like you're like, right. oh, these people are oppressed, and like they're right. you know fighting against this oil conglomerate, right. and then and then you're just like, oh, but they're people. Right. People, like they're still people. That's people right. Like a lot of excuse my French, effed up stuff. I mean, you right. know. <laughs> That's like, right. Humans are humans. I, I mean, you know, you you could you you could take Kosawa and put it anywhere around the world. You could put it in Asia, South America, and you have similar characters the way they're in that book because it's called human nature. And, and and so I couldn't say this is this is I, I have no interest in the you know oh look at the good guys and they're so they they being oppressed and look at the bad guys because that is just not life. That is not life. And yes, the, 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 the patriarchy was a big issue because even look at Tula's mother, who as a woman, she's really trying to assert herself, but she really cannot because she lives in a world that tells her, this is what it means to be a woman. And she really is trying to find a way to fight against that, but it's not easy. And I won't give you what happens in the story, but that is a very big part of, of what, but again, like what we said earlier, 
this is what they're fighting to preserve. <laughs> this is what they're fighting to preserve because it's their way of life. And Tula is not, she's not concerned about, I'm gonna change the minds of these, the minds of these men to make them you know, think of me the way they'll think of another man. She's, she has a bigger goal here, at least to her, the oil company and the, the degradation is a bigger goal. So if she puts herself through a lot for the sake of bringing justice to her people, even when some of them don't respect, respect her as a woman. Last question uh, from a, a reader and viewer. Your first book is a book club favorite for sure. Have you had good interactions from book clubs with this, uh, I, well, with the new book, but I guess um, also just generally? So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can't say I do a lot of book club because I, you know, I, um, I mostly, when, before the pandemic, I traveled to speak um, in libraries and colleges, and other places I was invited. But I, but no, I, uh, but I met a lot of book club ladies, and I am very grateful to the book club ladies. Thank you, guys, and gentlemen also. Actually, <laughs> book club gentlemen out there. So thank you, guys, and uh, and yeah, and and again, as a writer, I I wasn't writing thinking, let me write a book that a book club, you know, ladies and gentlemen will like. I I, I am very honored and pleased that. Um, that it gave them a top, topics for conversation. And I think that that is the whole point of literature. Like you said earlier, you want to, you know, beyond ha having a plot that, you know, makes, entertains you, you it, it's more than that. It's, it's for you to, to put on a book and wonder and ponder and be upset. I mean, that is the kind of book that, you know, I love the books that makes me think and uncomfortable even, like quite uncomfortable and, and, and question a lot about the world and see it in new ways. And that is why we come to literature. So um, I am very, very grateful for the privilege you guys have given me to, to read my work and to talk about it. So yeah, thank you so much. And below, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank, thank you, Shannon. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you to Book Club, Club Book for having me. <laughs>